If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is brought to you by Mountain Tough and Yeti. A lot of the tactics I talk about here require you to be in top physical shape. So I partnered with Mountain Tough to help get you ready for the mountain. With their science-based hunter-specific training app, you'll get in shape and mentally tough, able to tackle any hunt. Because we really believe this will help you be more successful, as a listener to this podcast, we're giving you six free weeks to get you started. Just use code LIVEWILD. It's no secret Yeti has some of the best and most durable gear out there. But when it came to hydration, they previously didn't have a great backcountry solution. Well, that all changed with their new Yonder water bottle. My Yonder covered the backcountry all across the West last season while chasing mule deer, elk, caribou, and more. It's about 50% lighter than their insulated Rambler, but still has that Yeti toughness. The best part is they've now got them in four different sizes, so you can pack the bottle perfectly fit for your hunt. To top it off, there's also great options for customization. You can check them out now at yeti.com. Welcome back to the Live Wild Podcast, everyone. We are right in the middle of elk month, and I'm really excited because when it comes to elk hunting, there's so many different tactics that can help you be successful filling your tag. I feel like having a good combination of tactics really allows you to take advantage of every situation, landscape, and season. One of the tactics that I feel can be extremely successful, especially for targeting mature bulls, is spot and stock hunting. So this week, we're going to sit down with Nate Simmons, a guy who I feel is the best in the game at spot and stock hunting elk with a bow. His consistent elk hunting success on mature bulls is really uncanny. He's one of the elk hunters that I really respect. So we're going to look at picking your hunting area based on this style of hunting and how to make good on an elk tag when you're not relying on the rut. But before we do that, I want Nate to share the story of a smoky elk hunt during the Idaho archery elk season. Well, th- thanks, Remy. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. All right, so this this story I feel like is a good example of how I was able to find success on a hunt where the elk weren't being super cooperative, the rut was in a lull, and it's just a good example of you know how you can find success for somebody that doesn't have a ton of confidence calling or just isn't the best elk caller in the world. But I had tagged out a little bit early on my Wyoming elk hunt, so I was able to get to Idaho earlier than anticipated. So Randy wasn't available to film yet. He was still in New Mexico with Chris. So I just thought, hey, I'm just going to head over there solo and at least try to get things figured out, maybe find some elk so that when Randy showed up, you know, I wouldn't have to sell film. So I got out there, I packed in like about seven miles and, you know, had stuff to sell film, but that really wasn't my plan. I just thought basically it's a glorified scouting mission. I had only been out there about two days and I figured out very quickly, like I, I had, even after Randy got there, I was going to have my hands full, uh, with trying to kill an elk. Like I didn't hear a single bugle. I wasn't glassing very, like the, the elk were not visible, you know, for very much, just very briefly in the morning. And I just wasn't seeing much, wasn't hearing much, but there was sign. I knew there was elk there. That is an area I'd hunted before. So I was somewhat familiar with it, but I was, I got up on the second morning, was heading out this ridge. And as I got up onto this bump, I looked down in the saddle below me where I'd seen fresh elk tracks the day before. And I noticed like three or four elk heads. There were cow elk coming through the sage headed towards that saddle. And I just assumed, hey, it's September. Chances are there's probably a bull in tow. So I went around, got in position, got the wind right, and they fed through just right on script. And there was no bull. So I thought, well, hey, it was worth a shot. So I ended up working my way up to that saddle. And as I was working up there, I actually found like a broken 
side to it, like the top of a fresh broken side of a six point. And I can see where two bulls have been fighting. So I'm like, okay, they've been using this. Like there's fresh tracks here yesterday. You know, I just saw some cows come through. Some bulls have just been fighting here. I thought, okay, this is just, it's, and there was water close by. I thought, okay, I shouldn't get too far from here. I should keep an eye on this because I'm getting desperate. Like second day, I know things are not looking great. So normally when I want a glass, I would get up on a bump, but I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to sit here in the saddle. And I had a pretty decent view of the backside of that, the open side of that hill from that saddle. So I just thought, I'm just going to sit here. You know, you never know. Something else might come through here later. So I started glassing and actually glassed up a herd out in the flats in the wide open country and had a decent bowl, not, not bugling or anything and really in kind of a terrible spot. But I thought, I'm just going to keep an eye on them. Maybe they'll, you know, reposition themselves, uh, in a better spot or, you know, whatever. I just need to keep an eye on them and see what transpires. And as I was sitting there, you know, probably, I don't know, an hour went by or so. I just kept kind of scanning around me and I looked down on that same trail those cows had taken earlier. I just saw an elk rack and I couldn't tell if it was a five point, six point, but it was definitely like, you know, a more mature type animal. I could tell that much. So instead of, you know, wasting time trying to scrutinize it, I just immediately got my tripod out, got the camera set up and got an arrow knocked and this bull's feeding towards me. And I'm basically in the wide open. It's not like I'm sitting in the grass. I mean, there's, there's sagebrush around me that's, I don't know, probably maybe a couple feet high. It was enough, just enough to like kind of break up my outline if I stayed low, but it wasn't an ideal setup. And I did have some like rock bluffs kind of behind me, but I was still pretty exposed. You know, like I was, it was wishful thinking to sit there, but I really didn't have, if I would have thought like a nice bowl was going to come by, I probably would have got in a better spot. So it wasn't ideal, but this bull just kept feeding straight towards me, right towards the saddle. I don't know if he was following those cows, you know, from earlier in the morning or if he was just wanting to get over, you know, onto the shady side of the hill. But it wasn't until he got about 50 yards away that he just noticed something, you know, like he, like there's a lot of wolves in that country, a lot, a lot of hunting pressure, like the elk are just edgy. And so he didn't know what I was, but he just knew something wasn't right. And he just kind of turned and started veering slightly around me. And at the point I felt, I, I noticed, I'm like, okay, that bull knows something's up. Like he's not coming any closer. He was going to either skirt further away from me. And I felt like he's in range now. And I don't know if he's going to be for very much longer. So I just risked it. And I, I drew back while I stayed low. And as he saw the movement for me drawing back, he just stopped perfectly broadside. And I had ranged the sagebrush where he was at. And I, so I knew roughly within a couple yards of how far he was, and was able to get a perfect broadside shot. He gave me plenty of time and he went 150 yards and piled up. And I ended up, it, it took me the rest of that I was by myself. Uh, unfortunately was able to get it on video, which was a nice bonus, but it took me the rest of that day to process him and then shuttle all the meat back over to the shady side of the hill and then get just back to my base camp. The next day I hiked out. And I texted my wife on the inReach and said, Hey, bring, bring the mules. And then we packed it out two days later and it was, you know, in a, in a perfect spot. You know, it's not in grizzly country. So I didn't have to worry about any of that. Nice and shady, good breeze. But the whole the rest of the time I was out there, the rest of that day that I was processing him and shuttling me and the entire day that I spent with my wife shuttling out, like I left there, never heard a single elk bugle, never saw anything that I even thought was like remotely like, Hey, these are ideal conditions this is what you hope for. It was basically like a worst case scenario, you know, but the results were basically, you know, no better than I could have ever dreamed. You know, he was a, he was a great mature six by six bull, you know, and I couldn't have been happier, but you know, I just had to be open-minded, you know? That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's the thing when a guy talks about thinks about elk hunting and you, you expect to go into the elk woods in September and get into all this bugling crazy action and that's not what happens all the time. Sometimes when you go, it, it might be the rut's not on fires in the area. I don't know how many hunts I've been on where you go in there thinking, Oh, this is going to be great. And then the forest fires are just relentless and they do not like being super active during forest fires. Unfortunately, a lot of times that when that happens too, it's hard to spot, but you know, by being able to adjust your tactics, I, I actually think like, the one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you was because our hunting styles in some ways are, are kind of opposite. Not that I won't stalk an elk, but I really enjoy calling elk, right? 
But I also know that if I just want to kill an elk or I want to kill a big bull, I'll go stalk it because it is extremely successful and you don't necessarily need the rut, especially like this, this season, the elk that I'll probably end up killing will be stalking in Montana or Idaho because I can't hunt till later in the season. And and most of the time the ruts kind of already shut down. But I also think that there's a very important part of this is I know when you, you talk about elk hunting, you're picking an area based off of that tactic. When I want to call elk in, I go to the thickest, darkest timber possible because I know that I have a better chance of calling a bull in. And that's the only way to hunt those bulls. But if I know that I I've got an area where it's got multiple types of terrain, I'm going to go pick that area based off of uh, stockability and glass ability. And so I think it'd be good to let's jump in and kind of talk about your strategy when it comes to picking an area to elk hunt, thinking about, you know, employing these kind of tactics and then what you've learned over the years while hunting this style. Yeah, that's a good point because I do feel like that, that the hunt that I just described was a perfect example. Like if I had been in thicker terrain, you know, where there was very limited visibility, you know, that hunt probably wouldn't have worked out near nearly as well for me. You know, I would have, without them being vocal and not being a real confident caller, which, you know, a side note, it is something I am, it's, it's a point of emphasis for me the last few years. Like I'm definitely trying to expand, you know, my skills as a caller, my confidence as a caller, but you know, the fact of the matter is that most of my, I would say 60% of my success, elk hunting success has come from never making a sound with a call. But before I ever plan a hunt, uh, before I ever get myself into the field, yes, I'm usually trying to pick areas that present lots of glassing opportunities. And just like my mule deer hunts, like before I leave, you know, I'll have spent a bunch of time on Google Earth and finding good glassing locations where I feel like offer me a lot of visibility to a lot of pretty good elk habitat. And I'll have, you know, at least 15 or 20 different glassing uh, locations before I ever download my, you know, on X and stuff and go there. Like I've already predetermined those because in a worst case scenario, like if the elk are not being vocal and not telling me where they are, like I want to get to where I can see them. And I don't want to be at the mercy of the rut because like you said earlier, like, yeah, yeah, we all want that where they're bugling, you know, going crazy. You're hearing lots of bugles. The rutting is great. But for me, at least, like, I'm lucky if I get two or three days like that in an entire elk season. Most days, it's almost the opposite. You know, it's like a little bit of bugling in the morning and very little in the evening. And, you know, not being a a super confident caller. Like I don't just want to start pounding the timber and doing a bunch of cold calling. You know, that's just not never really been my, my thing. So I try to pick areas that are going to allow me to, to see elk and also not just see them. I try to pick areas that I do feel like the terrain lays out in a way that has a lot of folds to it. There's a lot of broken topography so that once I do see them, I actually have a chance to try to work my, my way, you know, to within at least a couple hundred yards. And then from there, you know, just kind of see what happens, but you know, just uh, it's, it's basically two parts to picking that terrain visibility, seeing them, but also just enough broken terrain that it allows me to stock, you know, if that makes sense. So yeah, I do feel like that's probably the most important tactic really, you know, because I, I might have tons of experience spot and stocking, but if I, if I go hunt Northern Idaho, I'm probably screwed. You know, it's just the terrain doesn't lay out in a way that would, you know, benefit spot stock tactics. You agree with that or? Oh, yeah, that's I mean, I think that people kind of overlook the the aspect of kind of your success in a hunt isn't just when you get out into a f- the field. I think people will see guys that are successful all the time. They go like, oh, man, he, he did this or he did that. And what you don't realize is we we start at the very beginning of picking a place based on the way that we're going to hunt in many ways. Uh, I, I think of it, especially when it comes to pronghorn hunting, I've, I've been very successful shooting antelope with my bow spot and stalking. And I generally only hunt for a couple days a season. And I find the success because I pick areas that are conducive to stalking. Like I'm not going to see as many antelope, but I want to pick the, the area. So when I do find one, I can stock it. The same goes for 
mule deer hunting, elk hunting. I pick those areas based on the tactic. And like you mentioned, you know, where they, the elk weren't calling. If I'm in an area where I'm planning on calling and the elk aren't calling, then I'm going to adjust my area and my tactics from the beginning. I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to go into a burn now. I'm going to go into an area where I can spot. The bull I killed last year with my mouth tab, I stalked that bull and he was in a burn. And it was, I had very limited time. I had called the bull in earlier. Then I, they just weren't receptive. It was the last evening. It's like, okay, now it's time to, to get into an area where I can spot, where I can pick out a bull and I can sneak in and kill it because I'm out of time. And there's so much to be said about picking your spot based on how you want to hunt and the conditions that are going on. And, you know, sometimes you, yeah, you can get into, I've called in elk in open country, but it's not as successful calling elk in open country. So when you're in that type of terrain, you know, pre-planning, I think gives you a lot more edge when it comes to being successful based off the conditions. Yep, absolutely. And I've made, I've made that mistake, you know, it wasn't even that long ago. I think it was in 2016, I drew a elk tag in Colorado and I went down there and didn't have a very good game plan. I mean, I always take calls. Like I would be, I think even for somebody that's like an elite, uh, has had ultra, ultra success, you know, stalking big bulls, like it would just be insane to not have calls, at least a cow call. So I always have calls, but I didn't have a very good game plan. I'd picked an area that was pretty flat and really timbered. And this was actually the second time I went there and made the same mistake. You know, I've never killed an elk in Colorado, but like the first day I called in a six point to like 20 yards and it was a frontal shot. And I just, for whatever reason, like I've taken frontals, I just wasn't feeling it and the bull got away. And then for some reason, like I just kind of forgot about that and just went more to my spot and stalked where I just remained silent. And I ended up spending like eight days and never killed an elk. And in hindsight, it's like, if I wanted to spot and stock, I should have picked different terrain. And, you know, in hindsight, I would have went to that same spot. I just would have, I, I would have approached it differently. I would have went calling plan A, spot and stock plan B, you know? So I do feel like, like mixing and matching is super, super important. Yeah. And I, I think that being flexible is the key because there's so many times where I want to call a bull in bugling, but the best way to call them in is with cow calls or it's, I'm in an area where it's, they aren't making noise. Okay. Now we need to stock. I think one of the, the things that people don't think about when it comes to stocking is, okay, you found elk, right? Well, now what? And I know that there's, you know, kind of the, the walk us, let's walk through that proximity to the elk. So you've spotted an elk. Um, I think that elk are very susceptible to being stalked during the rut as, as well. But I think that if you want to kill a big bull, you're, it's very hard to call a big bull in, right? If you're out there and you're like, Hey, I want a mature six point, but you, it's the, they've got their cows. They've got all these things. I, I feel like sometimes being able to stalk in allows you to pick out a certain elk and, and wait for that weakness where he gives you an opportunity to stalk. But what's your game plan? Like once you've found a bull, like walk us through the the scenario and then what you do and, and how you kind of get close to that animal and how you wait and how you, you make your Okay. Move. No, a good example. Like I got a, a, just a, a great example of what I would do is the story of my Idaho elk hunt from last year. And I had come off of, again, I just come off of a successful elk hunt in Wyoming where I had really committed to calls on that Wyoming hunt. I had picked an area that was a little more timbered up and I did that intentionally, just kind of forcing myself to rely on my calls. It's something I want to work on. And it worked. I called a bull into 16 yards. It was amazing. He came in bugling. So I went to Idaho thinking like, I'm, I'm going to call in a bull. Like I'm doing it. Like I'm get like I'm, I'm getting better at this. So we go out there and on the very first day we get, we get out to where we're going to camp. It's like six miles out there, get up on the first glass in spot and spot a huge bull for Idaho. Like it's like probably the biggest bull that I'd maybe ever seen in Idaho. He was, he was busted, but like just a stump and he had a pretty good group of elk. Uh, and I was able to, I mean, there was a lot of, there was some, uh, there was probably like three or four smaller six points. There were some five point spikes, a bunch of cows. And I was able to observe him and being able to observe him, for as long as I did across the canyon, I was quickly able to just read his body language and go, this, I don't think 
that calling is going to work on this bull. And the main reason I didn't believe that is because I was watching how tolerant he was of other six points coming in close proximity to his cows and to within him, you know, where sometimes you watch an elk and you see like, he'll lose his mind, you know, if a raghorn comes in and it's like, okay, that one, I might be able to go over there. And if I could get in a good spot, blow a bugle and maybe he's going to flip his lid and come in this bull. I don't really know exactly if there was just like one cow that he cared about. And as long as another bull didn't come within that, you know, proximity of that cow or if nothing was in a heat or whatever, but he was bugling a lot, but he was not aggressive. Like he was very, very tolerant of other elk. So it was a little bit of a bummer because I thought I want to shoot that bull. And there's a ton of other eyes. There was probably 40 or 50 elk in that, in in this clump of trees. And there's one shooter in my mind, at least I mean, on the first day, that's what I felt like. And I just thought, man, this is going to be tough. Like, I do not think if I go over there and blow a call, I just don't think it's going to end well. So we ended up looping around and I thought the wind would be okay, but we got over there and it was actually pretty stable, which surprised me because it was kind of like right at the tail end of a storm system. There was clouds. I just kind of thought, man, like the thermals are going to be squirrely. This is probably just a situation where I should back out, wait for tomorrow. But we got over there and the thermal was like consistent. Like it wasn't even a thermal, like it was, it was windy and the wind was right in my face better than I had anticipated. We were able to get in that timber patch with this group of elk. And this is one of the things I love about spotting and stalking is that, you know, I mean, generally when it comes to spotting and stalking elk, like typically what I'm like, my plan is, is just get as close as I can based off of the terrain and the wind and just remain as close as I can to that elk herd as long as possible without being detected. So like I'm pushing it as, I mean, I'm being aggressive without being stupid. So if it means I can get to 60 yards from his cows and remain there, I will. If it means I can only get 150 yards, I'm constantly just, you know, just like a rubber band. Like, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm getting a little further, a little closer, a little further, like just constantly trying to stay with them. And eventually there's a, a decent chance that that bull's going to work his way over on my side of the herd and offer me a shot. And that's a, that, that was essentially my same game plan in this scenario on this Idaho hunt. And I was able to get in that timber patch and I was, I was within bow range of, of an elk for a three and a half hour period, which is almost unheard of, you know, like the, the wind didn't ever swirl one. I mean, it was like after an hour went by, I'm like, okay, I need, I need to do something like this is not going to last after two hours went by. I still, I just couldn't believe it, but I was able to stay within bow range. And that's what I love about spot and stalking is that I was within bow range of this herd for three and a half hours and was able to be essentially surrounded by bulls and cows and, and observing their behavior, you know, was lucky to remain undetected. But if I had blown a call one, I don't think it had worked, but I do think, that's one thing. That's one reason I'm so hesitant to blow calls is because a lot of times in these public land backcountry areas, I work so hard to get into that position that I'm just hesitant to blow the call because I know for me, at least it usually comes to a head very quickly. Either the bull responds, you know, in somewhat of a timely manner, and it can be amazing to where they come bugling into your lap and it's the best thing in the world. But for me, most times than not, they either you know, they'll start, you know, working the other direction, whether they just detect that I am a hunter or the bull just doesn't want to fight. And he starts taking his cows, you know, another direction, you know, and because of that, I've just thought, you know, if I can remain undetected, at least I can stay in the game longer. And I'm able to, I just love being able to be amongst them and observe them at close proximity. It was amazing. I mean, it was three hours and there was bugling the whole time. I had shot opportunities on the other six points, you know, a lot of stare downs where, you know, something caught movement, wasn't totally sure we were being aggressive, but not stupid. And eventually it did work out to where I was able to basically what happened is that herd worked their way below the timber, not because they they had never detected us. They just started to feed out late in the evening. And I was able to keep kind of working my way down to the edge of the timber. And then it presented less obstructions between me and the bull. Cause I was at the edge of the timber he was out in the open with his cows and I was able to get like a 65 yard shot and was able to kill the herd bull, you know? And so it was like a, like that's kind of the steps I take in deciding, Hey, is this a spot and stock situation or a calling situation? Basically in that situation, 
I just read the bull's body language before we went on the stock and, and thought, this bull does not look like a great candidate for calling in, which I'm sure some guys could have gone over there and done it. It just, you know, it wasn't what I was perceiving. And it's another benefit of hunting in the open terrain is that it does allow me a lot of times to read their body language. Where if you're in the timber, you know, you might hear the bugles and that might tell you a lot, but still being able to observe like how many other bulls are there, how is he interacting with those bulls? I feel like it's a huge advantage in the open country of being able to take, you know, that herd's temperature and even if they're not calling, it still might be an aggressive bull. You know, I've seen bulls that never made a sound that just were rut crazed out of their mind just based off of what they're uh, behaving like. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, that's like exactly why spot and stock can be so effective on those bigger, more mature bulls. Because, you know, if you go in there calling, you, every elk knows you're there. And you might not be the bull that you want to come in and then it starts stirring things up and then other things ensue. One of the things that I, I really like that you mentioned is, and I think people, when they think about stalking elk is I think about stalking elk and deer completely different because a deer I'm pretty much like singling out the buck and stalking the buck that I'm trying to get elk or not. I mean, it depends on time of year, right? If a bull breaks off, like if I saw a bull break off from the herd and go bed, I would 100% like, you never do this, but you're, you're punching that tag in your mind, right? Cause <laughs> elk can't be fairly easy to stock. The hardest part about stocking elk is you aren't stocking one elk. You're stocking yeah. 200 elk in some cases. Like there's been herds that I've snuck in on this 200 elk and you go, okay. But to stock in, like think of it as I'm stocking the herd. And then you're, you're, it's, it's a little bit different than mule deer hunting. Cause when you're spot and stock mule deer hunting, you're like trying to get into position and making a play on that one animal. When you're, when you're stalking elk, it's more like I'm making a play on the herd and I'm waiting for the bull to mess up. And yeah, I can see, yeah. right? Like in some ways you're almost like, I need to get lucky, but you're, you're putting yourself in the position where it's a timing issue where you're like, okay, at some point I, I continue to dog the herd. I continue to get in close. And I think the thing people don't realize about elk, you can get away with a lot sometimes mm -hmm. depending on the situation. Like you can actually, like you said, push it, but don't be stupid. You need to get within that comfortable range where, okay, he moves and sometimes, you know, but waiting for him to, to circle around to push a cow this way and then just continuing to stay close, stay close, stay close. And eventually it happens. Yep. No, I totally agree. I do feel like it's just, it's just a numbers game. It's like the more minutes that you can spend in the closest proximity you can to a herd, you might not even be able to see the bull, but if you know he's there for one reason or another, or you just suspect that there's a bull there, like, I just feel like, you know, the more minutes that you can spend with it, like, it's just, a, it's just a numbers game. Like, and it's not like it, it isn't nearly as precise as deer, like you're saying, it's just kind of like, Hey, I just kind of need to be, I don't know if I'm going to be on the left side of the herd, the right side, you know, they're going to be constantly, it's just a, there's a lot, it's very fluid things, you know, you're having to make adjustments very quickly and on the fly. And there's times where they're just in a spot where you're out of the game. There's just too far. You can't cover the ground. And then maybe they move a little bit and you can, you can, you can catch up and now you're back to where you're within range. And it's just, it's a very fluid thing, but I do feel like, yeah, it's just, it's a numbers game. And there's plenty of times where I feel like I'm, I'm playing that, you know, just kind of cat and mouse back and forth with them to where I was within range of the herd a lot for, for maybe, you know, 45 minutes one evening and never get a shot, you know, and that might happen several times. Then all of a sudden, you know, on the fourth day, you end up within bow range of the herd for two minutes and then the bull loops around to your side and offers you a perfect shot opportunity. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's a great strategy. I, I think that that's going to help a lot of people because when you, in your mindset, you're like, I'm stalking this bull. And when you stalk the bull, whether like if he's in a position, you have to get past a lot of animals and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to blow the herd out. So it's getting in proximity and then letting the bull make the mistake. Uh, I think that, you know, there's always two ways to think about any kind of stock. It's like, okay, I can either push it and get closer and blow it, or I can wait and see if they blow it. And I think that you're hundred percent right. When you give them the opportunity to make the mistake, the animals are a lot less aware of you and you have a lot better chance of it actually panning out. Yep. Absolutely. I also feel like I gauge it too off of 
because it's so much, it's less predictable than mule deer. You know, on mule deer, it's like, you know, high country mule deer early season. And I, I, I kind of predict that things are going to be in a very specific order. Spot a buck in the morning, bed him, wait for the thermals, wait for the sun to get up, the thermals start going up. You know, things are a lot more consistent from time to time with elk. It's like during the rut, I have no idea if I'm going to get an opportunity in the morning, middle of the day, evening, like it could be, and I don't really even know where, like it could be at the top of the mountain, the bottom of the mountain. So I just have to be very adaptable and then gauge the situation, like how aggressive to be based off the conditions. Like if I end up finding an elk herd, say middle of the day, it's warm and the, and the thermals are just driving consistently up the mountain. And I also feel like I'm in a, in a spot where I'm not really anticipating other hunters, you know, locating these elk. I'll be very conservative. You know, I'll, I'll be aggressive when I feel like I can get away with trying to get close. And if I don't, like, I'll just be conservative. I'll get, I'll just do as much as I possibly can. I'll push the, the just to the edge where I don't feel like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bust them. Even if I'm being a little bit too conservative, because I feel like I've got the thermals into my advantage and I don't, I'm not worried about other people. But if I end up in a situation where it's like that nine, 10 o'clock in the morning where I'm on a herd and for whatever reason, I don't feel like waiting for them to bed. If I feel like they're in a good position to get close to, but I know it's at that time of the morning where the thermals are going to be a little squirrely or I'm anticipating someone else hearing this bowl, I'll push the envelope, you know, uh, way farther in that situation because I know I just don't have the time more than likely. I just, you know, I, I won't shatter them with as much patience in that situation because I just know that inevitably the, the thermals are going to switch and, or another hunter is going to show up. So I'll just push the envelope, you know, and be far more aggressive. So I'm just trying to read the situation, which I feel like it's just real fluid and it's something that is just kind of a case by case basis, depending on the time of day, where you're at, what the hunting pressure has been like, you know, does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because that, that is the thing people kind of forget that I like when you can hunt elk that are just going to be elk and there's no other pressure, no other things coming in, but that isn't always a real life hunting situation more often than not. It's like, okay, we're, we're racing against a lot of different things. Sometimes it's racing against time where you go, it's the end of the hunt. I got to make a bold to play. Uh, otherwise I'm just going to be holding my hand here at the end of the day saying, oh, I wish I would have had a better opportunity. And then there's times where you go, yeah, a bull's bugling and you're in a highly hunted area. You need to make that play before another hunter decides to come in here and do something stupid, blow yep. them out or make a bolder play or, or move in on elk that you're, you're moving in on. So it is very situational. And, and that is like, if I'm in an area where there, I know there's other hunters around, I feel the urge or the rush. And I've, I've successfully done it where it's like, I might even have to crawl past some cows to make this go down. Right. Or when they get into, uh, I'm sure you've done this too, where it's like, you're, you're on the herd, you're in proximity, nothing's going right. And then they go into maybe like some regrowth trees and it's like their vision's blocked. And now I'm, I'm going extremely bold and extremely fast to try to catch up to where that bull's at and get a shot at that bull. And that's worked out for me quite a few times. A lot of times in those situations, I actually might throw in a lot of cow calls just because I know that I'm going to like bump and move. Yeah. One of the things that I've found, you know, if you pull off the stock, right, you don't have to make any sound. Sometimes though, when I, spook if i like i don't know if you've done this where you, you're you're moving in on a herd you blow out a cow or a cow like oh before or after i'll hit that call stop that cow and she's like oh it's just another elk and then lay there for long enough that she just goes back to her thing and it gives me time to kind of continue the stock yep uh no similar yeah uh, same thing like if i if i if i bust a cow i'll usually just blow my bugle like the first the first nice herd bull i ever got in idaho I had spotted this bull up in a basin with, and he had like 30, 40 cows. It was a terrible, terrible situation. One bull, 40 cows, but I, you know, it was a great bull and I just wanted to have an opportunity so that I knew the next morning I was going to be heading back up that drainage, went back up there and there was like a, there was a nice bench that had some trees and then the trees kind of wrapped around the bottom of this bench and it was open everywhere else in this basin. And I made my way into that timber and I was anticipating from his bugle that they were kind of up on that flat 
And as I was working my way up there, like, I, I mean, I was, I felt like I was being real quiet and I was, and all of a sudden, just like 30 yards to the left of me, a cow just stood up staring right at me. Like she, I mean, she'd clearly been watching me for a while and I just got to a point where she was like, nah, and she was staring at me and I knew like, I got two, three seconds and she is blowing out of here. She's not, she's not curious at that point. She knows exactly what I am and she's just trying to decide how many seconds she's going to give me. So I just went straight for my bugle, let out a challenge bugle and it worked awesome. The bull just flipped his mind. It just flipped his lid and just charged straight in, came over to like 20 yards, just like panting, bugling and offered me a shot. You know, it was like, so it was never my intention to call that bull, but I ended up being like forced to make, a decision very quickly. And I, I don't feel like I really had any other option. Yeah. That's awesome. when that works out like that. Well, one of the things we were kind of talking about is, you know, the nice part about spot stock is you aren't necessarily rut dependent, right? If I'm calling, yeah. I, I'm not calling to call in every elk. I'm calling in an elk that wants to play, but there are certain times of the year, certain seasons, depending on what's going on, where the elk don't want to play or they aren't being vocal. So it makes it very hard to, like, if they aren't playing, you can't call an elk. So you can stalk. Now, there are also times where, like we mentioned, the right scenario and, and the right time of year, you get an even greater advantage. And I would say this might even come from hunting a little bit later in the season, maybe as opposed to earlier there, they're moving a lot more, but also early. I would say, actually, I'm going to just go back and say this works really good early and works really good late. Because what you get is the behavior of elk where the bulls will actually break away from the herd. I know mm -hmm. in, in certain seasons in Montana, when I'll hunt, a lot of times for me, I was guiding all of September and nobody wanted to hunt in October. And that was the time that I got to hunt the most. And you still get a lot of red action, but you might notice that the bulls will break off from the herd and go bed. So they'll go crazy in the herd and then they break off and are by themselves. Same thing early in the season when the bigger bulls are actually not sticking. The smaller bulls will be with the herd and you might find a bull by himself. And I, I find that that's probably the best time to kill a big elk early or late because the bull isn't necessarily with the herd. And like I said earlier, when I find a bull that's by himself, I almost start punching my tag because they're so much easier to get close to when you're used to stalking an animal that has 40, 50, 60 other animals around. Yep. No, absolutely. And I, I used to hunt elk early season a lot, uh, kind of like pre-rut, until I got to where now I just can't stand the thought of missing a mule deer hunt. So I hardly ever hunt elk early season anymore. Like, I mean, I, I drew a Utah tag, you know, I don't know, five or six years ago that started in August, and I did go early season there, and it was amazing. I, I love that. I never, never heard a bugle, never even saw a cow, but it was amazing. I, I do enjoy it. I just, I'm too into mule deer hunting. So, so now I don't hunt early season very much, but I used to, and I did, it was a very effective time of year to kill nice bulls. But now I, I do hunt late season, like October timeframe quite a bit, usually in Montana because the extended archery dates there. I love it. You know, it's usually till middle of October and, you know, every year is different. As you know, like, you know, some years they're still rutting good, you know, until mid October and then, other years where, where I really start licking my chops is when it's starting to feel like the rut's winding down and those bulls are like, like I feel like what I've observed when that happens and it usually comes like after a significant weather event, I feel like it's starting to get later in the rut and then say a, a good storm comes through, dumps a bunch of snow, gets colder. I feel like that can throw the rut into a funk even in September. So I feel like it even more so does in October after most of the rutting has taken place. And I've seen those bulls peel off like you're talking about and almost start acting more like mule deer doing the rut where instead of having a, a harem that they protect and that's their, that's their herd throughout September, you know, where a mule deer doesn't have a harem. He's constantly like going in search of a hot doe from, from herd to herd, you know, from doe group to doe group. I feel like I've seen that like some with especially the older age class bulls later in October to where you'll see them checking cows and they'll go up on the mountain. And then maybe later on, they'll go check that group or another group. The biggest bull I ever killed in Montana had done that. He had went way up on the mountain by himself after a storm. And I killed, I intercepted him, ambushed him 
on his way back down to where all the cows, the cows were all hanging down on private property. And this bull went up on the mountain and I spotted him and was able to, to intercept him. But yeah, I don't believe he ever bugled either. Just, it was just, uh, being in a, a, an area that allowed visibility to see him coming and was able to position myself to let him, you know, I, cow, I stopped him with a cow call, but yeah, I, I do. I love it when, I mean, I just like elk hunting. Like it doesn't like, I love it when I get to Montana in October, if they're running great, if they're not running great, you know, like I really don't feel any different about it. Like, I feel like my odds are great, but I, but I do, if I had to pick, I would pick that time where they are starting to uh, separate from cows uh, somewhat frequently because I do feel like they're super, super vulnerable at that point. Yeah. That's, I, I know people always ask like, when's the best time to elk hunt? I've got a tag. What week should I go? And through, I mean, I've guided for, well, I don't even know, almost, I've almost guided for 20 years elk. That's insane to think. That's just, I, I don't know how that could even be possible. But yeah, I, I think I, this year will be 20 years of elk guiding. And over that time, like we average the same success from the first week of the season to the last week of the season. You go, well, how is that? And it's because you change your tactics and you change your approach and you exploit the weakness for whatever that particular week has. So if a guy came to me, he's like, I'm going on my first elk hunt. When should I hunt? I can't give you an exact date because I go, well, okay, here's potentially peak, right? You don't know. There's a weather and all cut fire and all kinds of factors, but say perfect season. Let's say the peak ruts, I don't know, pick a day, September 19th. And I go, that's the best day to be hunting. Right. But he also goes, I've never put an elk call in my mouth and I don't know how to elk call. Then I would probably say I would hunt September 1st or October 1st or October 5th because you, you can, once again, pick an area based off of the tactic that you're going to use and pick a time of year that's a little more conducive. And although, you know, you can still stalk during the peak route, which is nice because sometimes the elk let you know where they're at. They're bugling. They're letting you know where they're at. Yep. But you might have less pressure, hunting pressure, elk that haven't seen all the tricks yet beginning of the season and elk that have seen all the tricks, but are just tired of all the cows. So they're going to put themselves in an exploitable position where you can move in. And then you also have middle of the rut when they're, they're making noise and now you can find them easier and it's, there's, they're going to be with those cows. They aren't going to leave those cows. So all you have to do is stalk a group of cows. I don't know how many times like I've even just been moving locations Ooh, spot an elk. Let's sit here and wait with a hunt with a client. And we sit there and wait and, and just creep within range and don't even know if there's a bull there. And then, you know, a bull bugles at noon bedded on the other side of the cows and we keep waiting. And two or three hours later, the bull decides to come over and check out and we're within range and game over. Right. Yeah. So there's so many different times and things, but by matching that season, by matching your hunt, by matching your tactics, I think just by intentionally doing it, you end up being a lot more successful. Yep. And one tactic that I'm starting to get more and more excited about the more I hunt elk later in the season, this usually applies to Montana, the October seasons. But when they do on those years where the rut is dwindling down and we've had some weather, if I can spot a bull go through an opening, even if I don't see where he beds, like I had this happen just a couple of years ago again, but I've done this, you know, quite a few times now and I've killed elk doing it, but it almost always results in a close encounter. And that's just getting on their track. Like I spotted a bull going, he went through an opening and he was probably four miles away. He went into a thick North facing slope. I had no idea like how far into that patch he went, but I felt pretty confident. He probably bedded in that timber patch. And I watched him go through this opening solo and I could see there was no other tracks in the snow. And so I decided, you know what, I'm just going to, it's going to take me a long time to get over there, but I'm going to get over there and get on his track. And, and, uh, and I, I did learn something that was, uh, valuable is that when I did get over on his track, I could almost not even distinguish that there was an elk that had walked through this opening. Like it was, it was windy. So the, the tracks had kind of blown over, but I mean, if I had just been walking along and cut those tracks, I would have been like, Oh, this, this was from you know, two days ago, minimum, like I couldn't believe, like I could almost not, like I was confused that I was even in the right spot. I'm like a bull just walked through here. And those, I mean, the tracks were almost completely gone until I got to the timber. And as soon as I got to the timber, 
because I've had this work, this has worked out enough times for me. As soon as I got to the timber, I knocked an arrow and just slowed way down, had my snow camo on and I got maybe 60 yards into the timber and just spotted one side of his rack and he was 30 yards away from me. And unfortunately, it's just kind of luck of the draw. Like in, in those situations, you don't get to bed him a lot of times and know, hey, he's facing downhill or he's facing uphill or left or right. Like you just have to hope that maybe, and most of the time they do, not all the time, but most of the time I feel like they do go in and they bed facing their backtrack. And this bull was, but I still got the 30 yards, didn't end up getting a shot at him. But man, like anytime I know that I'm going to end up in a situation where I can get within bow range of a shooter bull, like I'm going to sign up for it every single time. And most of the time when I trail, elk in the snow with my bow, which I, I kind of feel like in my mind, that's more of an old school. Like when I think of tracking elk in the snow, I think of late season, like old school rifle hunter with a lever action 30, 30, you know, I don't really think of, you know, like modern compound, you know, hunting tactics, but like it's worked most of the time. I feel like, especially in October, they're not migrating. They're not going for miles and miles. Typically it results in a short track job and a close encounter. I have killed a couple bulls doing that. I also, what would have been my biggest Montana bull. He bedded, like I watched him, I, I saw him up feeding and opening early in the morning, watched him feed into the timber, same thing, went up, got on his track. And I had to follow him probably 300 yards. And I spotted him before he spotted me. And he was actually facing away. Like he made a huge mistake and and it was windy. So I was, uh, even though the snow was kind of, it wasn't crunchy snow, but you know how like that powdery snow is still pretty loud. Yeah, It was windy enough that I was able to get 40 yards from that bull and right as I was getting done ranging and getting my release clipped on, he must have caught movement because he wasn't completely facing away. He was kind of facing quartering away, caught movement, stood up, which was what I needed anyway. I got to full draw, like basically, like I couldn't have been better. And at the time, I just thought I choked. Like, uh, it was, you know, super cool video, but I, like, I was convinced that I just had to have choked because there was no, explanation how you could miss a broadside bull at 40 yards and this was like a 340 you know like just a stud montana bull but in height like i ended up after i got back and replayed the video i couldn't see it but you could hear my my vein must have just clipped a branch that oh. I, I did hadn't accounted for so you know like it was like my bow went off and then it clipped like that branch was probably pretty close to me so it threw yeah. my arrow way off course but like the point is it's like it could have worked if I'd have been paying attention a, a little bit better. Like the tactic worked and it's kind of fun. Like I enjoy, uh, and don't have the opportunity to do it very often, but like trailing a bull that you know is solo, um, in the snow is, uh, it's a pretty exciting, uh, prospect. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it. And I, we get to do that a lot during the rifle season, um, because you get more of that snow and those elk being trackable. But you're right. I think when you find, especially if you, if you've got a bull spotted and you see that he's alone, it puts you in a great advantage. Elk can be a lot easier because they don't necessarily go tuck under brush like a deer might. They'll go into the timber. It's shaded. It's cool. And by still hunting, by going slow, we've killed a lot of elk that way with bows, with rifles, whatever, even maybe not even having great tracking, but just knowing like, Sometimes you'll notice, you'll, you'll watch a, in more timbered country, you'll see a meadow, you'll see an elk go in, pay attention to where he goes in, and you'll find a, a game trail right there. And then often I'll pull out my map and I'll look like, where's a good potential bedding? If it's steep, I might look for those benches where it's like, hey, this probably goes around to a ridge that then benches out, and I know that bull is probably sitting there. They like to be comfortable just like the rest of us when they bed. And I've had a lot of success anticipating where that elk is, and then just using my binoculars in the timber really moving slow, spotting an antler. And when they're by themselves, it gives you an advantage. It's a lot harder to do when there's a group of elk. When you know a bull's by himself, I, I pretty much always take that gamble. Yep. No, yep, same here. And I feel like uh, like we also discussed the main philosophy, like spot and stock, you know, f for me is just get as close as I feel like I can, you know, without being stupid to where I can just be as aggressive as possible without being detected. And that is, that's a hundred percent accurate. Um, but I do feel like the best case scenario is when I spot a herd that is not being pushed, you know, they're just behaving like normal elk and they're feeding in one direction. And as you know, like 
elk that are completely, you know, relaxed and feeding can cover ground at a very fast pace. So sometimes it's not possible to get in front of them, but that's definitely the best case scenario for me is if I spot a herd that's feeding relaxed and moving in one direction is trying to get in front of them. And usually, I, you know, you can't, because of the wind, usually you can't get right in front of them. They're trying to get in front of them and off to the side, just, you know, so that your breeze is kind of going off at it at an angle away from them. Just so you're really like kind of flirting with getting winded, but getting as close, playing that game as, as close as you can. And obviously I feel like if I can't see the elk, say maybe they're bugling, but I can't see any sort of direction of travel and I just have to try to get close. And I don't really, maybe they're not even moving, but I'm just, you know, trying to get as close as possible. Like for every, maybe like, let's say 20% of the time that I'm, that's my tactic or, or that's the opportunity I'm presented with is just trying to get close and not necessarily moving. Maybe 20% of the time I get a shot opportunity, but I feel like if I'm able to get in front of a herd that's moving, I feel like it's probably maybe 50% of the time I get a shot opportunity. I just feel like the odds go up, but it's obviously not a, it's a difficult thing to do because they do, especially in the mountains, like they're covering a lot of country very easily. And, you know, sometimes it can be almost impossible to get in front of them, but that's usually the best case scenario for me is if I can get in front of them, I mean, I'm, I'm a hundred percent not touching my calls. You know, it's just too good of an opportunity. Yeah. If you get that good ambush. And I think sometimes too, hunting an area a lot, you really learn the patterns and the movements of elk and they can be very predictable. Uh, we've had a lot of success guiding hunters where it's like, we see the elk and we go, we know where they're going. And if, as long as you've got that broken country and you can kind of uh, like, like you say, just cheat that wind where you're, you're paralleling them and trying to get ahead of them. If they're behind you, you, you put yourself in a unique position where you can often, especially if the cover's right, get into a position. I try to do it where there's like a ridge or something. So I can be on the backside of the ridge and then move close enough to where those cows start filtering through and know like, okay, here's where they're at. I'm on the backside. So I can make that move and try to like jockey into position to get ahead. And then a lot of the time you'll get a shot at that bull because you know, they'll be below you. They'll be distracted. They'll be feeding. They'll be doing other things. Cows will be moving by and you put yourself in a really good position to make that play. Yep. Yep. Not, and not, not that, uh, you know, follow if you're in the rear, like that's the, in my mind, that's the least ideal situation to be in, especially like if I'm in the, my preferred terrain that's pretty open. A lot of times it's almost impossible to follow them because they could just, they can see too far. But if I happen to get them into timber or if I, you know, like not every place I go is wide open. Sometimes I end up hunting in lodgepole and stuff. And I've had it work out to where, you know, just they're moving, they're unaware of you, but you're behind them. And there's, it doesn't like, if there's not, the train doesn't allow me to get around in front of them, I'll just dog them. And I've had that work out too. Cause in that scenario where they are moving, typically the bulls in the back. So that, you know, as you get close to the herd, usually the bull is going to be the closest animal to you. And if you do have decent cover, you know, so you're in lodgepole or in, in a timber somewhere on a North slope, you mentioned earlier, you can, you can get away with murder with elk, you know, like, cause I feel like I can be making a little bit of noise. I can, I can get away with some movement because they're just, if it's an elk herd, to some extent, they are just used to sticks snapping or a little bit of movement. Um, so I'll be, but if I'm in the back, I'll be ultra aggressive because I feel like my odds are pretty dang low as it is. If I'm crazy conservative following them, you know, I don't love my odds unless I feel like they're headed to a spot that is going to be present me with a better opportunity. But if I have no idea, I'm unfamiliar with the country and I'm just like, Hey, this is the only elk herd I know about. And I'm in the, in the rear, I'll just, I'll push the envelope as much as possible, you know, trying to, to steal an opportunity at that bull. Yeah. I think like if you stock elk, like you stock mule deer, you'll be extremely unsuccessful. And if you stock mule deer, like you stock elk, you'll be extremely unsuccessful. <laughs> if you stock mule deer, like you should stock mule deer and elk, like you should stock elk. They're different. And by doing it different and understanding the differences, you're going to be a lot more successful in both pursuits. And the thing about elk is, uh, with deer, it's a game of like being slow, being quiet, being meticulous with elk. Yep. It's a game of speed. It's being where yep. the elk are when they're there. I don't know. Like, I, I don't think I've ever killed an elk with my shoes off because I'm generally running after them. 
Um, you know, and it's like, I'm not worried about noise as much. I'm more worried about speed and proximity and then sight and freezing if I get seen. Um, whereas other animals, it, it's different. So I think that's the thing, like when I take a new elk hunter, the thing that surprised them the most is how fast we're moving and how much we're going. Right. It's like, yeah. Oh, the elk moved. And I'm like, now we need to be where they were. We are now behind them and now we got to be super aggressive. We got to push. We're practically running to get to where they last were so we can make the next play. And yeah, there's times you got to slow down and be quiet and, and whatever. But I think the mistake a lot of people make is they'll start stalking elk like it's a mule deer and they blow their opportunity because they aren't within that good proximity. And then the same deal with like a, a deer is they, they go too fast, they make too much noise and they blow it out. So by understanding that, yeah, stalking elk is very different than stalking a lot of things. Of course, there's situations where it's going to be the same. If I had a bull bedded below a tree in the shade by himself, I'm going to stalk him like I would a deer. But those situations don't present themselves that often. So you have to do a little bit different tactic. And it's a very, I would say, a very motion-based tactic of you're, you're continually stalking. It seems like an elk stock is a continual stock in my mind, whereas a mule deer stock is often like a, to a certain point. Yep. Yep. No, I totally agree. Yeah, I do feel like, yeah, it is amazing how with elk, this like rarely ever happens with deer, but you could be pinned down you know, like basically flat on your stomach, trying not to be detected. And you might have to lay somewhere motionless for an hour. And then as the last elk goes over this bump, then you go from motionless for an hour to sprinting as fast as you can for 400 yards, because you, you know, there's a pinch point you got to get to. It's yes. really a stop and go. You got to make decisions quickly, like hesitation, just even a few seconds of hesitation can cost you, but you know, it's almost the opposite on a, on a mule deer. You know, I feel like Hey, if you're not sure, like, just slow down and think it through for a minute. It'd probably be better than trying to make a quick decision. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, thank you so much for joining us. I think that we definitely got a lot of good stuff out of this. I'm excited because, you know, we're talking about, I, I want to do an elk month because I think that there's so many little tactics to elk hunting and a lot of people don't get to be out there as much as, as we have. And so the things that I've learned over the years, you've learned over the years, I think is a huge benefit to people listening to the podcast, whether they've been elk hunting their whole life or just getting into it, there's always things that we can learn. I'm constantly learning things still. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that there's a lot of great takeaways there. And I think that it's a lot of these tactics are tactics that you can use in so many situations, planning on, you know, picking the place you hunt based off your style of hunting. And then these are good scenarios and things to think about if the elk aren't being vocal, if you, if you aren't a great caller, if the scenario doesn't dictate that you can call getting in on the herd, playing that patience game, waiting for the bull to mess up so many great takeaways that I think are going to lead to a lot of success this season. Oh, absolutely. No, I agree. I just feel like, yeah, the, the thing with elk, I feel like is, and I, I just feel like things are getting tougher, especially the general season over the counter opportunities is just being able to be versatile, you know, to not go there, you know, with, uh, Hey, this, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm either going to spot and stock or call or whatever, just going there, having an open mind, being versatile, being very adaptive, being able to pivot quickly when things aren't working out and make adjustments. I think that's just going to be, you know, I think it's always been the key, but I think it's going to be more so, you know, in the future as, you know, things, uh, I just feel like for the most part, tags are harder to fill now than they were 10 years ago. And, you know, obviously want to fill as many of those tags as possible. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Nate. Uh, thank you guys all for listening and until next week, we'll catch you guys all later. I hope you guys really enjoyed that podcast with Nate. So much good information in there. A lot of great stuff to help people be more successful this fall. If you think you might be spot and stock elk hunting or just doing any kind of backcountry hunting, mule deer, sheep, whatever, and you want to lighten your pack, but you want to bring a spotter, I'm super excited because one of my absolute favorite spotters that Vortex make got a redesign is the Razer HD 13 to 39 by 56. If you're, I call it the baby razor. So if you're familiar with their smallest razor, what they did is they just updated it. It's essentially in line with their other razor optics. It's super awesome because it's got, uh, the focus is on the body. It's durable. It's small. It like 
is about the size of a water bottle. And yet it goes from 13 to 39 power. I carry this. I've got to test this one, field test this. I've taken it on all my hunts this year. It's just been really awesome to bring that smaller spotting scope. If you've seen me use that small spotting scope a lot, they've just upped to the game. It's it's much more powerful now. The image quality is insane. It's I would say it's definitely my favorite spotting scope, and it's just released today. So if you're interested in that, check that out. If you're in the market for a new spotting scope or you're like, hey, I do a lot of backcountry hunting, I like not having to carry a lot of weight if I can help it or sacrificing weight in one place to take something else. This spotter is awesome. Yeah, I've talked about their smaller razors before and the fact that they've been, they just updated it and I don't know, I really, really like it. In the time that I've got to test it, it's been incredible. I highly recommend it. So that's out now. In, if you guys are interested in you know seeing any of the stuff or getting some of this stuff information ahead of time, you can always sign up for their Vortex Nation email list, vtxnation.com. That's just one of the ways they've got awesome content on there. They're, some of the guys over there, they've got some great videos, really good educational stuff. You know, I've actually been going through a lot of their educational videos on setting some stuff up. I got a new rangefinder of theirs that I'm using, the 4000 GB, setting it up for a hunt in Alaska. And just going through their videos, me like, okay, how do I pair a Kestrel to this and other stuff? Awesome stuff on there. So Vortex Nation, really good resource for a lot of great things. Check it out. And uh, yeah, happy hunting. And what are we going to say? How are we going to end this? Stock them out. Stock them up. <laughs> Go get after it. <laughs>